Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. We're back with more Q&A with Bishop Julian. I'm Javina Graham and I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Ambrose. That's me. That's right. And today we're going to be talking about another really interesting topic within the church that does seem to raise its head very often. And even in conversation with non-Catholics, the conversation often comes up. So that question is celibacy and the priesthood. Now, within and outside of the church, Bishop Julian, a lot of well-meaning people suggest that the, the the answer to vocation shortages would be to allow priests to marry. Is this the case? I'm not convinced that, that just um, allowing priests to marry will solve the problem. I, I certainly think it would probably mean that, that some men will decide to become priests because they, they also desire to be married. So I'm, I'm sure there would be some sort of increase um, in in people approaching the church to, to be ordained priests. Whether it will overcome the vocation shortage, I'm not sure. It could in the short term. But um, I, I still think that um, in terms of the tradition of the church having a celibate clergy, I think there's too much... Uh, in favour of the value of celibacy in relation to the priesthood to make that change, if you like, for more immediate practical reasons, uh, understandable as they are. I think it goes back a lot to to the question of the nature of the priesthood. Um, a priesthood, the priest is one who stands in the in the figure of Christ and he, you know, when we when the priest says, I baptise you, it's not he himself. He's standing for Christ. And Christ himself, of course, was celibate. And, and Christ spoke about the idea that there will be some who will choose celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. And if you like, priests are in a very particular way connected with the, the deepest levels, if you like, of the work of God through the church, the sacramental life of the church. And so they are very particular instruments of the work of Christ and and so and, and, and the building of the kingdom of God. And and so I think the Lord, if you like, makes an certainly an invitation or say says simply in that statement, look, some will appreciate the value of the kingdom to the extent that they will say, I'll devote myself completely, single mindedly, totally to the work of the kingdom. And I think the priesthood is of that nature. And therefore, I think celibacy and the priesthood have something very, very intimately connected, whereby I think it's appropriate that we preserve this tradition in the church. Having said that, Bishop Julian, uh, the, the first apostles were married. So... Um, what would you say when people argue that celibacy should be at least optional then? That, that's right. The, the first uh, apostles were married. I mean, we, we hear Jesus curing the uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So clear evidence that he was a married man. They were married men because that was the, um, 
the, the practice, the custom of the day, and the Lord chose fishermen, chose tax collectors, chose ordinary men who were already living their lives in a normal capacity, being married men and, and looking after families and, and so on. Um, however, it's also interesting to note that at the time of the coming of Christ, several key figures were celibate. Uh, apart from Lord himself, of course, we have Mary and Joseph. We say Mary was ever a virgin. And we say ever a virgin to say that it wasn't just a virgin at the time of the incarnation, but remained a virgin after uh, the birth of, of Christ. Hence, Joseph was also lived a celibate life. We know St. Paul um, spoke about the fact that he was celibate. And he, he said, he said, doesn't expect everybody to do it, but he said, by the grace of God, that's what I've done. So he was celibate. John, St. John the Evangelist was celibate. St. John the Baptist was celibate. What we see is when we look at just the, the if you like, the incarnation, the actual coming of Christ, there's so many key figures associated directly with the coming of Christ were themselves celibate, if you like, because they're caught up so profoundly in the mystery, if you like, of what, of what God was, was doing. And so that introduced, if you like, a concept that uh, those closely associated with the work of Christ um, were celibate and that celibacy was appropriate uh, for them. Now, certainly when you look at the early church, there was no immediate mandate uh, to say that every single person then had to remain celibate. In fact, for quite a few centuries, uh, bishops were, were, uh, uh, could, could, uh, could be married and so on. But at the same time, there was a movement in the church where many people wanted to devote themselves to the Lord and adopt a celibate state. And so you have, so you have virgins. Uh, there were a lot of women, obviously young women, who said, I'm going to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom and they would devote themselves to prayer, for, to good works and so forth. The beginnings of what we now call religious life. But we find that in evidence very, very early in the church, uh, young women who would, who would take that decision about the way they lived their life. We see with the emergence of monasticism, um, initially hermits and then later monastic communities developed in the third and fourth centuries particularly, and we can start talking about tens of thousands of Christians choosing the celibate life so they could devote themselves to the, the matters of, of, of the kingdom. So if you like, this whole idea of celibacy was something which became ingrained in the spirituality of the church, ingrained in the kind of vision of the church from very early stages. And, and as time went on, there was more and more encouragement to priests to say, look, because of who you are, what you're doing, it's appropriate that the celibacy, the celibate state, be something that you adopt because you are a, a, a priest. And so it grew and developed until it became mandated by the church to say, this is what we require. I think, I think to, to, uh, to change the rule now would be to lose something which emerged from the, the, the primitive faith, the initial faith of the church, something which has great spiritual value and therefore, I think just for, if you like, for pragmatic reasons, I think we could lose a treasure in the church of saying, no, we're going to ask priests to make this sacrifice 
of the good of marriage, which it is, it's a good, um, for the sake of being completely devoted to, uh, to the Lord as celibate men. You're right, Bishop, this is such a sacrifice. And you've been rector of a seminary for many years in the past. How, in your view, how, do we, how can we attract more men to sacrifice that great good and, and, be, and become priests? I always like to say, firstly, that, uh, that marriage is a normal way of life. And we see, I always go back to the book of Genesis for so many things, but in the book of Genesis, the very first thing that's spoken of immediately after the creation of man and woman is this is why a man leaves his father and mother, joins himself to his wife, and the two become one. So clearly saying that in God's design for human life, marriage is the normal course in which that life is to be lived. But then as the Lord says, but some he will ask to sacrifice that good, for sake of, sake of the kingdom. I believe that, um, that the priesthood is firstly a calling, but also a good in its own right. And it's, it's so interesting, you know, these days there's so many issues around the priesthood and, 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 it's, and it's, we're going through a very difficult time with regard to priesthood and celibate priesthood in particular. But what is also clear is that men who have experienced a call to the priesthood and embrace the priesthood, find great joy and satisfaction. It's something very hard to explain, but very, very real. So many priests will say, I love being a priest. And it's a confirmation, I think, of the fact that there is a grace associated with the priesthood. There is a calling that a person responds to and receives from God um, it's not just like they're in, it's an imposition upon them to say you have to be celibate. It's rather that as they respond to the call to the priesthood, there is a grace at work that draws them into priestly identity and a desire to be priests. I think that will be the ultimate attraction for, of, of men to the priesthood. I think they will sense in it, it's not just a job, not just an interesting thing to do. It's not that they're just super religious and they want to do something super religious with their lives. But in the end, I think it will be the fact that they sense a call and accompanying that call is a grace. Accompanying a, that call is a desire to give over everything, to be a priest. And, and when you become, when you are ordained, there's no doubt in my mind that you actually, actually change. Just as you are in marriage, you're changed by marriage, the two become one. It's a different reality. You are a different reality when you're married. It's also true for the priesthood. It's not just that there's a formal rite that takes place and you're now officially a priest. No, there is a grace. There is a, a transformation that actually takes place inside the person whereby they are a priest. And, uh, and I think that is ultimately what is the great attraction and, and, and the power of the priesthood. And I think if we changed the rules with regard to celibacy, I'm sure there'll be many good and holy priests, married men, I'm sure they'll do a wonderful job, but also I think we'll lose something. And, and, I, and I believe that um, God will continue to call men to the priesthood, even though it seems because, and I think the society in which we live and the struggles with faith and, and relationship with God that we experience in our society has meant that there are few people able to hear the, the call of God. There are few people available to respond to that call. But that can change. 
and I believe it will. It's so wonderful to hear you speak about celibacy in such a beautiful manner. Thank you, Bishop Julian, for exploring this topic with us. It's a pleasure. Jeremy, as we come now to our Did You Know time of the program once again, again, I'd like just to go back to um, little phrases, little customs, little uh, things that we hear and we just sort of take on board um, to know where they came from. For, for instance, one, I'm sure you've heard it many times, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, I've heard of it a few times, Bishop Julian. And, and maybe you think immediately, I, I mean, I, I, I would have too immediately thought, Peter and Paul, that must refer to St. Peter and St. Paul. That was the obvious, if, particularly if it's going to have a, a Christian background. Um, in fact, that's heart, partly true, but not the actual source. It's not to do with Peter and Paul in the scriptures. The story, uh, how it came about, was that uh, it's to do with one of the English kings, Edward VI. He wanted to endow St. Paul's Cathedral, as you know, one of the great cathedrals in uh, in, in London. And uh, to in, in order to endow it with what it required, he decided that he would give it um, a particular manor, which was based, a manor house, which was based in, in Paddington in London. Um, now, he owned that particular manor house because he'd previously taken it from the Abbey of St. Peter at Westminster. So uh, the custom came, well, there's the king. He's robbing Peter to pay Paul. Oh, it all makes sense now. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit credio.org.au.